Hi guys, this is another episode of the Golden Age of Serial Murder. I'm Toby, and with me again is Simeon. And today we have a very special guest from the very, very popular podcast, the True Crime Garage. Nick Edwards is 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 here with us. Hi, Nick. Hello, Simeon. Hello, Toby. Thank you both for having me on today. Very happy to. Today, the serial killer that we're going to be diving into is a figure known to many true crime aficionados, Dennis Rader, the BTK. Making for... tomatoes and ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> known for bind, torture, and kill. So we're going to start here again with the killer's childhood and then move on to his psychological development and then again diving into his his killings and and the aftermath of his killings yeah well one thing about this guy is is that uh when we mentioned the nickname is is that what you might describe we're going to see with some more people like this when we get to assuming we're going to cover the the hillside stranglers but he's kind of the first serial killer fanboy he's he's someone who was directly inspired by the by the the killer we featured in our first episode, Harvey Glattman. There were some similarities in their fantasies and their materials they used in their murders, but he was directly inspired by Harvey Glattman's writings and photos. And and in his letters to was Wichita Eagles or very some some uh, media uh, outlets in Wichita, Kansas, where he was from. He's always referencing these other serial killers by their nicknames or by their names or whatever. And of course, he invents this nickname. BTK, which is what he's known as, it's an invention and it's kind of a sales pitch. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's kind of something he invents and, and sends to the media after his, after, after, after he'd already killed some people and after, you know, but he wasn't getting the coverage that he wanted. And as I said, he, he's, he's kind of the first of something you will see uh, in, in future episodes who, who studies other serial killers, who's a fan and whose ambition in some ways not the motivation or for his crimes necessarily, but his his but who has an ambition to be as famous or infamous as them, and to have as a cooler nickname or a or as cool and 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 uh, starting with Harvey Gladman, who was our subject first, he, he you know lots of other killers inspired this writer or were peers in a sense in the 70s, and he's in and he is an un, unusual also in that he's from uh, Kansas, Kansas, not from California. Or whatever, but this is you know if you my mother was uh, from Kansas, you know Kansas is a place that if you know anything about it, it's people there. Uh, you know it's 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 a it's a large rural state. People there, there there's you know in places like that they long had a thought that this doesn't happen there. You know you 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 live in Kansas or, you, or maybe you moved to Kansas because it's safe and it's and it's community it's community oriented and the crazy stuff that happens in New York City and. California doesn't happen in Kansas, but that's a uh, that's just something people thought. Okay, so I should go on to his uh, childhood. So Dennis uh, Lynn Rader's parents, Dorothea and William Rader, married and settled down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, in the early spring of 1941. They were both members of the Zion Lutheran Church. It was in their first marital home in Pittsburgh, Kansas, in the spring of 1945 that Dorothea and William's first child was born. They would never foresee his dark infamy. Dennis Rader, born in March of 1945, would be the first of four boys born to the couple. Because they 
his parents were devout Lutherans. Vader was baptized quite young at the Zion Lutheran Church with their family congregation standing as, as witness. Dennis Rayner's mother, Dorothea, worked long hours in a grocery store called Leakers, and her long hours affected Rayner in some say negative ways. His father, William, worked for the electric company KG&E in the early 1950s. Between them, the Raiders were able to provide a, a kind of mo modest, sort of lower middle class, perhaps working class economics uh, status at, at, at that time. But both of his parents uh, were kind of partially absentee because they did have to work. Dennis actually has uh, quite, I don't know, when you compare it to other killers that we've profiled on this podcast, uh, Peter Curtin and even some more modern killers, they tend to have quite difficult formative experiences, uh, whether it's uh, suffering from uh, abuse or loneliness or, you know, experiences like that. Dennis Rader has a much more mild, relaxed, formative experience. He, he joined uh, the, the Boy Scouts and was considered to be uh, quite competent and quite well-liked by the members of the Boy, Boy Scouts. He had good relationships with his brothers uh, as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things about him is, is that it, it, that's striking is, is that he didn't, at least to the outside observers, there was not anything you would particularly point to as being a clear cause or even antecedent to his crimes or, or anything weird about him or about his upbringing. Certainly when we get to someone like Gacy, he's an absolutely horribly abusive father. Or sometimes you know, some people who have had brain injuries, uh, Gary Hyde, neck on a whole episode of him, but he fell out of a tree and he was never the same afterwards. And, and you know, Peter Curtin, obviously. But, you know, Dennis Rader did, there were things about his childhood that, that when you study them, there are, you know, you see some of the, 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 the real serious things that you would see, like animal cruelty on his part, but nothing that you would point to in his upbringing or his environment uh, or his uh, family that you would say, well, this is, this is something you might, you might see or you might not be surprised to see. There, there, no one who knew him at all saw any of that. I, I, think, I think it was only people who had studied since then, and after maybe talking with him or, 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 or more in-depth examination of his childhood, people did not, you know, take any note. And also, when you grow up in, 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 in that part of the country, uh, you know, people hunt and fish, and it's very easy for certain things to, to come off as normal or, or whatever. But uh, Dennis Rader did, for instance, strangle, I think with rope, which, of course, is a, a motif, strangle turtles. He would eventually kill, I think, cats and dogs. But no one saw this. No one noticed this. And, and there didn't seem to be anything strange about him or about his family or that any other kids thought were strange. He, he, his whole life, for, up until when he gets arrested, he fits in everywhere, even though he was maybe not, you know, he was maybe average popularity or, you know, you know whatever. He, he, there's nothing about his, his life or how he presented himself that screams out, there's something troubling here. I think, uh, yeah, just to follow on from what you're saying, I think his experiential life was different from the one that people could observe. So 
he remembers at quite a young age watching the slaughter of chickens for dinner and feeling himself being like sexually aroused by the violence that was happening at the time. But that's not something that anyone could detect happening. It was happening within his 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 mind. And I, I think it's really, really interesting when he tries to reflect on, you know, when he did his confessions, when he really tried to reflect on causes for um, his early feelings and his early acting out, he would talk about his mother being absent and being engaged in magazines and not having a tremendous amount of of time for him. But as you say, within the community, no one was really detecting what was happening at a subterranean level to uh, Dennis Rader and, and the, the experiences that he is actually having uh, sexually that, that led to the, the kind of acts that, that you talk about, you know, with the abuse of, of, of animals. The weird thing about Raider to me, and I think Simeon hit it right there on the head, is that he, he seemed to, he, he is one of the first that stands out as this, this type that almost aspired in a way to be a serial killer and, and studied other serial killers. He was, he, he was learning from them at times. And when referencing his childhood, he also seems to at some point realize that he was different from other people. And he managed to kind of conceal that and keep it secret from everyone. And he was certainly up to all kinds of horrific activities uh, the the strangling of cats and he was doing a lot of this stuff in in barns and such and in 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 his uh, I believe his either his parents basement he he had a lot of weird activities that he was engaging in by himself and so at some point he realizes that he's different he has these fantasies that somehow become clear even at a young age to him that it's not normal that others don't share these fantasies I mean he talked about wanting to kidnap one of the Mickey Mouse club girls that he had some kind of fascination with and tie her up to railroad tracks. And he had a fascination with trains running over women that are tied down to the tracks at a very young age. And the, yeah, there's no signs of, of abuse. There is, you know, thought that maybe there was some bedwetting. I don't think that bedwetting has anything to do with any of this type of activity at all. Yeah. Um, and but he, he seems to be able to, what a lot of people would call compartmentalize this parts of his personality that he knew would not be accepted. And he had an interesting term for it. He called it cubing, um, where, where he would show one side of his self to everybody else. And on the reverse is a completely different, horrible side. That, that he chose not to show to anybody. And he, he managed to keep a lot of these things secret. Simeon was right. This guy was absolutely influenced by Harvey Glattman. You guys covered Harvey Glattman brilliantly. And I mean, he even references lust killer Harvey Glattman he, that he discovers a magazine cover. This was the February, 1959 front page detective magazine that the title I believe was the sex craved photographer in his graveyard of models. And it had pictures in there from the Glattman case and pictures that Glattman had taken. 
And he would later say that this would be the greatest sexual rush he has ever experienced. And this man, obviously he's still living, but before he was caught, he was rather up there in age. He had a, a, almost a full lifetime of experiences. So to say that that is his greatest sexual rush that he ever experienced. Now, this magazine came out, as said, in February of 1959. Uh, he would have been, I, I'm guessing, 15, 16-ish. I don't know when he first got his hands on it, but that is something that he directly references. And so obviously, yes, I believe he was having a lot of these types of fantasies leading up to this, but I think this was... If we could point to a possible tipping point for this guy, I think that his discovering and fascination of this one particular magazine might be might be a potential tipping point here. Yeah, no, exactly. And there, there were it was other concept content um, from the Malerly Hearts Killers. Uh, he, he was reading about even before the Glatman about two uh, murderers, Mar Martha and Raymond Fernandez, killed young girls. Then he progressed to the, the Harvey Glattman content. And even his killing of Dolores, late in his reign of terror, in some ways, when he sketched it out, it was a little bit of a reference to, 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 to Glattman. So now you have almost like the first kind of postmodern serial killer who's who understands that there are people out there who've done this who sort of live in the same time but maybe you know a few certainly a few years younger and can reflect on that and, and act out to try to reference and an appreciation of the the acts of, of of other killers he does seem to be someone who who was aware of all these things very early on and we've talked a little bit about how detective magazines uh, in previous episodes are seem to be a, a, a something that fuels what's developing in some of these very very dangerous killers' young minds. But specifically, it's interesting also. I think that he really he really uh, models himself after these killers, not just the tableaus or the ideas in the magazine, but after sort of like their 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 erotic mission. You know, and this is a guy for whom fantasy is foundational. When we talked about Harvey Glattman, I kind of thought that the key to Harvey Glattman was the ropes. And yes, he also has, you know, he kidnapped women and he ties them up and he, and he takes pictures of them. All those things are important. But I felt that the ropes, you start at the age of three. That's the thing. With Raider, I think it is the, 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 the fantasy and specifically the the uh, the scenario uh, that plays out, because his his fantasies are very very um, detailed. I mean, Glattman's and and most killers are very specific, but Dennis Rader's fantasies are very elaborate. And we mentioned you know what he was imagining doing to the Mickey Mouse girl. I think I read that he really had a thing for her, but um, yeah. he was young. But he also I saw this in a documentary really stuck with me, uh, a more recent BTK documentary. He had all these, uh, not just in terms of writing, but these detailed drawings that he had, not just of you know, what he would later have of himself and costume and stuff. But um, when he was a kid, you know, teenager or, or preteen, he had this whole idea of kidnapping not just one girl, but a whole bunch of women and keeping them in one of those really big silos you see in, in rural Kansas. 
mm -hmm. you know, far, farm silos. And he had drawings of out of like outfitting a silo as basically a multi-step, multi-level medieval torture chamber. And I don't think there's any evidence that unlike some people in, 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 in uh, true crime, that he had either the capability to fully envision or to enact this mechanically. But he did have all these drawings and designs for this multi-layer silo being outfitted as a as the sort of torture dun dungeon, but in but modern design that we covered in the uh, in the episode we did the German Inquisition. He he had a, a, a certainly a a very rich and uh, dark imagination. It, but I don't think that Raider is someone who who's necessarily uh, more mechanical organizational skills. Thankfully, we're we're uh, that, but he did have all these fantasies about kidnapping women and keeping them in one place, and not just one woman, but but a whole bunch. And maybe those were just grandiose, but they, but they were detailed. Oh yeah, yeah. The, he had a fascination with H. H. Holmes. You know, after he learned at a young age that this guy had tried to outfit his his home and and mm -hmm. set up traps and and play things to his advantage to these unsuspecting victims and he loved that idea and you're absolutely right he wanted to outfit barns he wanted to outfit uh silos i think in some of his creations if you will his ideas were to to run some train tracks and and have a train inside of a barn so he could tie somebody up there and he wanted a, a study you know a, a den if you will if to 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 journal these things and keep record of everything that he was doing. He, 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 you're right. He, he had one of the more elaborate that we are aware of, you know, because one thing we are very, the one thing that we can be lucky for, I guess you will, uh, is that this is a guy that likes to talk a lot and he likes to talk a lot about himself. So that gives us some potential to learn from him. And he's, been very open about how elaborate his his thoughts and his ideas and his imagination was all fixated on this idea of binding torturing and killing uh victims and there is a core duality here as well that um and i think that's perhaps different from other covers that we've covered obviously other killers have had jobs uh they've 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 had families but like dean call for example always perhaps seen as an oddball probably because he was a homosexual who was 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 hiding it uh the son, son of sam obviously uh lived quite a, a secluded life but raider cultivated a, a rather normal life he he, he to some members of his community, he cultivated a particularly honorable life. He was president of Christ Lutheran Church. He was a Boy Scout leader. Um, once he was arrested, his mother requested to, to go and, and see him, and his brother requested to go and see him, and they were both denied. And uh, his brother, although he was beginning to realize and contemplate what was happening and the full extent of the murders that BTK had, had committed initially seemed to completely forgive him. So he 
had uh, developed strong roots uh, in the community, which I think in the um, general profile of, of serial killers is seen as is quite normal and 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 meets the the sort of normal requirements of, of serial killers. But actually, in our our experience on this podcast, we have covered specific people who've you know have, like Peter Curtin who've been to prison multiple times before they you know they were caught or, or Dean Coral who was a little bit odd or the son of Sam and now we're fixated or and even Harvey Gottman who who lived quite a, a sort of a life on the fringes um, was engaged in within uh, psychiatric uh case studies and and uh, as as a young person was perhaps also a little bit of a, of a bad kid and then Kemper for example who actually killed people before he became a, a serial killer so that there's there does seem to be this uh, caseload that we've built up of people who were actually seen in their formative experience to perhaps be dangerous and here is someone who wasn't seen as permissive experience to be dangerous, despite what he was experiencing. And here's someone who actually cultivated a, a particularly ordinary life. Well, one of the things about about him was that you know when when you look at say we've talked a little bit about the uh, developments in criminology in the United States, the you know the beginning of the FBI profiling, you know behavioral science and all this stuff. They were uh, particularly unprepared to even conceive of someone like um, Dennis Rader because their sense of, from the little limited limited experience they had of uh, this type of offender and of these sorts of uh, serial or hardcore criminals was that these are guys are not, you know, they're not going to be, they're not the, the person who runs the church like Dennis Rader had, had you know, was the executive for his church, they're not going to be they have happily happy or even stable or 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 even notable families. They're they're gonna be, you know, they're not they, they might they might have a wife, but they're not gonna have you know, they're not gonna well they might like like Peter Curtin, they're not they're, 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 you know it's, it's gonna be it's just gonna be a, a pose. And the thing was is that they couldn't conceive of someone like Raider uh, but one of the things we've seen since then with People who have what Raider, which Raider certainly does, the psychopathic personality structure. And there's a whole lot of people like this who are not criminals and who are just very successful in, say, business or, or, uh, or, or, or some sort of social thing, or, or, or uh, that, that these are people for whom uh, their, their uh, family life and the, the part of their life they project to the world as being normal. That this is in their mind, this is a game they're playing. And the fact that they're able to balance all these sides of themselves is part of the game. And, and these people love control. They love uh, controlling uh, how they're perceived, controlling the circumstances of everything. So that actually in reality, Dennis Rader having this criminal uh, occupation that no one is aware of as well as this job and family and, and all these social roles this is something that surely gave him a great deal of uh 
challenge and satisfaction in pulling it off as a game, as a kind of a, a poker game. It's just that in the early days of, crim of, of criminology uh, after the war, and you know, and and what people understood about criminals before then is that these is that the, people couldn't conceive of that. But actually, whether you're talking about criminals or whether you're talking about people who who, who aren't criminals, they're just not trustworthy or not or whatever, um, or or, or uh, you know, psychopathic, whatever you, you want to call it. That, that that this is actually quite normal now uh, among those types of people. It's just that it was not seen to be the case. But they, they but but Dennis Rader, I think that that all the other things, his family and all that stuff, that I think that that was just, that all that normal stuff, it's a projection, it's part of his ego. And maintaining some level of control over how it is perceived and over how he's able to operate it, including the parts of it that were just like the, the church functions and the family functions, that's as key in many ways to his psychology as these, these uh, horrific uh, fantasies and associated crimes. Okay, Simeon, I'm going to have to stop the recording and I'm going to send you guys both a, a new link. Okay.
Uh, one thing to add just about from his childhood, it's a small little thing, is that there's not really re reason to think that he was abused or that there's anything that particularly centers around his mother. But one of the experiences he did have as a child, apparently, was that um, I think he was, uh, uh, you know, disciplined a little bit, you know, corporal punishment as a kid, not, not in a way that more than abnormal. But uh, he he uh, one, one, there's a record of that he he uh, the one of his early erotic experiences was that he his mother got trapped got her leg stuck in the, in I think the railing by the staircase and she got her whole body stuck in there and called out for help and just that spectacle and the sound of that made Raider really aroused. I don't think it had anything to do with it being his mother or just 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 someone who's trapped and you know alarmed and that would later be a uh, kind of a, 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 you might say the, an early uh, version of some of the stuff that would form his fantasies. Yeah, that's, that I think is the, the part that gets lost with Raider a little bit, that, that so many people focus on the bondage part of BTK because, of course, bind them. But yeah. th it's the sadism part that, that gets lost is that he he does get sexual gratification and he sexually aroused from the thought and the image and the sound of individuals who are helpless or who are in pain or who are experiencing pain or going or know that they are going to experience pain or even death. And that is a part of of what it is that. That, that is his motive, in my opinion. And the other thing too, kind of to circle back around to this cubism of him, you know, out and having a family and working class and uh, appears to be normal to most people. But, you know, you're exactly right. I think that it, that it's, it, he enjoyed the cat and mouse game, number one, but number two, he, he was, he says that he was always hunting. And he was always out doing these projects and he was always kind of keeping tabs on people and making notes. Once he decided that he was in this, he was always kind of doing it covertly. And you're exactly right. I think that he got a certain level of satisfaction for his ego and even sexual satisfaction out of this. Plus he was doing a lot of sexual fantasies in stuff by himself uh, at these, what he would refer to as hotel parties, which is, you know, uh, completely disgusting. And, and also with when his parents would go out of town, when he had his wife and he had his kids, he would go over to his parents' home and use their home for, to, to be alone. And so he had a lot of things that he was doing that was kind of, kind of keeping him, keeping the monster at bay, if you will. And then, his childhood, I, I, I do want to point this out, though. While there's nothing that he tells us or nothing that stands out or is, is obvious to any of us that his childhood was anything but normal, and he, we do have to keep in mind, at his core, he is a deceiver. And he, he has been deceiving everyone for almost the entirety of his life the cubism and all the stuff that we've already talked about is clear indication of such and so for for us to sit here and go well it, according to what he tells us and, and all this stuff that that he had a normal childhood let's take that with a grain of salt because again it, it 
his true self, he's he's a deceiver. Yeah, only speak with, with that, and partly that is true. In part, just only what, based on what other people, such as his siblings, his parents, the other kids he, who lived in the neighborhood, what they claim to see or not see. But when you're talking, when, when, people, when they ask them, but most of this is formed by Raider himself because, and, and, and he, he is very much very controlling of the impressions he makes, including on them, certainly everything he says. You're actually absolutely right about that. He's a guy that is so sexually screwed up and out of control that look at the result, right? So who knows all the weird stuff that he was actually doing and could even involve family members, uh, the stealing of undergarments. We know that's something he did with, with other people. Who knows what the extent of this is? And look, the the family, his his adult family, his childhood family, they've all been through the a level of embarrassment that hopefully none of us on this call today will ever experience. And, and hopefully none of us combined would experience this level of embarrassment. So I don't I know that they're going to be shouting it from the mountaintops either. Yeah, I think it's, it's, <laughs> yes. yeah, that, 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 that is. And it's interesting you mentioned the cubing. This is, you know, this is something that that I, I that is, an, you know, because you know, obviously, Raider is a extremely devious and deviant person, but there's something about this also that I think you can fit into some of the some of the because uh, we the whole thing about Raider and I think what he will felt where he came from is is that he came out of nowhere and he may have seemed to, but obviously these these type of people are pretty similar regardless of where they're from. Um, the cubing aspect of it is also, you know, when we talked about how certain things and how and why certain things emerge at particular times, you have to take, you look at it in each individual case and you can't over, overreach on this too much. But the thing with the cubing, I think is there's something also what's happening in society at the time. There's a lot of cubing that is encouraged in the culture that is, that is going on in a lot of people's lives the difference between public and private, the difference between love and lust. There's something about the way that this, that these, these things are just strictly differentiated uh, in society at this time. You have the, also the some level of, you know, the pub, the, the 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 displays of propriety, but also the hypersexuality that's developing in the post-war era in you know, the way it's it's marketed. I think someone like Raider develops to some degree in that climate, even if he he, he people like him have always developed and uh, you know there's something analogous uh, to the way that and, and within the context of this that that to that and i think this is that you maybe uh, he grew up seeing that and learning how to better present this to the world even if um that's in no way responsible for what was going on with his se his sexual fantasies being so particular to him but i think it's something cubing is is a, is a phenomenon not just people like this but I think increasingly you see some version of this with a lot of people in, uh, in society with how they present themselves publicly and privately and how they conceive of parts of themselves as being strictly differentiated. There's, there, there, it, it becomes more and more prevalent, I think, at this time. So he, he starts to, to stalk uh, women more and more, and he starts to zero in on the Otero family, 
Josie and uh, Otero and her mother, he saw them at the supermarket and uh, he thought they were very attractive. He was attracted to, he was able to be attracted to dark skinned uh, women. This is something that he, he said at the time. The Oteros had lived in Camden, New Jersey, and then the Panama Canal Zone for seven years. And uh, their relative uh, native Puerto Rico uh, with relatives for a few months. They bought their house in Wichita only 10 weeks earlier and were still getting their bearings. Uh, Wichita was a big airplane manufacturing center and this spelled a particular opportunity for Joe Otaro. He had retired as a technical sergeant after 20 years in the U.S. Air Force and worked on airplanes and, and taught flying at Cookfield a few miles outside Wichita, uh, the air capital uh, of the world. And the members of the Taro family, uh, Joseph, Julie, Joseph Jr., Josephine, Otaro, the, the bodies were discovered by family's three-year-old children, Charlie, Danny, and Car- Carmen, who had been at school at the time of the killings. What... Um, Razor did is he crept to the house. He saw Josie Otaro. Again, I, I always like to describe some of the victims sometimes. And uh, Josie, she was 11 years old, wore glasses. Uh, she wrote poetry, drew pictures, uh, mostly worried uh, about her, her looks at, at the time. Well-loved member of, of her family. And, um, but this is all before Razor comes. As Josie woke up in the morning, uh, Razor crept with a gun to her back door and saw something that made him sweat, a paw print in the snowy backyard. Uh, he had not ex- expected a dog. He whistled softly. No dog. Still, he pulled his Colt Woodsman 22 from his waistband and slunk into the garage wall. Raider was 28 at the time. He had dark hair, green eyes, and they spent a lot of time looking deep into the dark. Uh, at the time, he looked a lot of pornography. He, he liked to daydream. He was talking a lot about his, his Factor X uh, away from his family. Factor X was what he described as his, and that was his description for uh, basic... Uh... Criminal pathology. Uh, Ted Bundy would use the t- phrase "the entity." I think, but that Rector X was uh, was Raider's description. Dexter with the dark passenger. You know, a lot of, and I know Dexter's fictitious, fictitious character, but a lot of these guys have some kind of name or moniker or term for whatever it is that they. And I want to be clear about that: that they for some reason believe is driving them or forcing them or controlling them to do this or, or nudging them. So sometime between seven and seven 30 AM radio approached Edgemore street, the Otaro's house. He'd been surveilling and stalking for some time. He expected to find Mrs. Julie Otaro and her daughter, but he was surprised that Mr. Joseph Otaro was home. Raider said that he cut the phone line, which at the time was an actual physical line that ran from each house to, to a local receptor. Raider committed his crimes uh, in an age before cell phones and fiber optics. 
I think Raider had at one point had a, a job the uh, doing uh, the electrical uh, wiring. Yeah, uh, that's to me the one part of his one part of his career that actually evidences real uh, a real effective intelligence at play because it, that's a really good uh, both a really good job and a really good cover for for the type of making sure you've got the, the you know control over or over, over, over how the electricity works in the house and you have to cut lines or something like that. In Wichita at the time, once people knew about the VCK, they started getting a lot of security systems and then Raiders took advantage of that. And that is worth noting that 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 it's going to be a recurring thing in this, you know, when you were, we're in this podcast, when you're going and over serial killers in general, predators uh, tend to get jobs that put them in position to access victims or position to cover their crimes or both, you know. So Raiders said that the family didn't take him seriously at first. Mr. Joseph, in fact, thought Raiders' presence was a joke. But he forced Mr. Otara to lie down on the living floor. Mr. Otara was lying down. It's an unusual, uh, he did not plan for this. And, and, and this is his most documented, well-documented crime, the murder of the Otara family. Raiders says that once the, the family was bound, they enjoyed a casual conversation. He chooses to soften his image within the, the conversation. Reyes mentioned that he didn't have a lot of money. He was passing this off as a breaking and entering robbery initially. He told Reyes that he had recently suffered from a cracked rib from a car. Apparently the man in which he was bowed and how he was forced to lie on the ground caused his injuries distress. Reyes, in an attempt to paint himself as a savior of sorts, says he had him put a pillow down on this for his head. I think he, he also did this with the van killing when he helped the boy he just injured by putting resting him on a coat. So he always tries to maintain that sort of image of like respectable, kind neighbor. There there's something about this. He really he really had he his whole cover, it works remarkably well considering that you know he's armed and, and everything, but I guess this is also because it's Kansas and you know, these are people who, you know, who would never even imagine what he was actually there to do. So he bound the members of the family. Ray's claim it was a lost man's decision to kill members of the family. So Mr. Joseph Atari was the first to be murdered. Ray positioned the family in a way as to have the males on the floor and the females on the bed. All of them restrained. Yeah, Mr. So- Otaro, who he considered to be the, the biggest threat to him, was killed or had to be killed first. And with with the, you know, offering and, and giving Mr. Otero a, a pillow to kind of comfort him in a way, I I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's that is part of his facade, right? That he's able to to present himself as this neighborly individual and a, a person of the community. But in this moment, he I'm going to say thrown totally off of his game, but that would be not 100% correct because this is his first murders that he's going to commit. Although he's attempted at least one kidnapping that I'm aware of before his attack on the Ateros. But it, it, this is part of, of his, he it needs to control the situation through manipulation. And he does not one. He he's not intending to see a dog. He's not intending to see Joseph Otero. This is going to probably scare the piss out of him. And 
when he does this, he is in a situation that he's going to try to present. Only he knows what is about to happen or what his intent is. And so he's going to try to present this to the victims as it's something completely different so that he can calm them and, and somewhat control the situation because from the, from it, it looks like when he enters this home, that things could get way out of whack for him very quickly and go very bad for him very quickly. We're talking about four individuals plus this dog. And he actually has Joseph Otero controlling the dog for him to the point where I think Joseph is the one that forces the dog outside. And it's, it's his way of controlling. And it's a little bit interesting and it kind of cycles back to something that we had talked about earlier about him kind of studying these other serial killers. Very interesting to me that the Zodiac killer used a similar ruse at Lake Berryessa saying that, Hey, I'm a, you know, I'm on the run from the police. I just need your money and, and your, um, your vehicle. And Dennis Rader says something very similar to the Otero family, there and and i don't i don't find dennis raider to be anywhere near the level of intelligence that he believes that he is or the or the way that he tries to tell us how smart he is i i think that he probably stole this uh idea from zodiac or from someone else yeah, so he kills mr terror in front of the members of the family he says that he was he could control the situation. He kind of panicked. I mean, this is the, the first recorded time that he had done this. And the although he also, it also seemed that he kind of enjoyed the fact that there was an audience for for this crime. But but he felt that he was losing control of the of the situation once he he killed uh, Joseph. So once he does that, he he rushes. So. He tells the judge that one Sotero's bag ripped, allowing him to access to the oxygen. The whole family just went. They were panicked. So I went pretty quickly. So well, I mean, he said, I strangled Mrs. Otero. And then when she went out or passed out, I thought she was dead. He, he was very excited in, in, in telling this. And then he continues to suffocate the other members of the family. Which is where his his primary interest uh, lay, which was the mother and the daughter. So he strangled Josephine, but he know at the minute he had no clear intention of of killing her. So the reason, obviously, that's not the reason why he was here. So after his quick strangulation, Josephine, he turns his attention to the only unharmed person in the room, aside from the strangler himself. He leans down over the nine year old Joseph Junior. But just as he puts the bag of Junior's head, Mrs. Otero comes to and begins to struggle against her bindings, gasping for breath. This unexpected revival causes Raider to leave Junior with the bag over his head, but not yet secured, so he can move back to the bed and deal with Mrs. Otero. He says she woke back up and pretty upset over what was going on. Raider says she begs for her son's life with such conviction that he actually removes the bag from Junior's head, but his removal was no mercy. He was simply trying to abate her fear so he could more easily murder her. He says, so I came back and at that point in time strangled her for the death strangle at that time. But Raider revealed actually that she she 
did more than beg for the life of her son. In her dying gasp, she whispers, God have mercy on your soul. So he strangled her again, and this time she did die. Both Mr. and Mrs. Otero are dead. Josephine is passed out over the next to her dead mother's body, and, and Junior's lying on the floor near his father's body. Josephine, I think, was the, if, if you get to pick one figure from this, was the one that, that Raider was most fixated on, even though you would not describe Raider, strictly speaking, as a pedophile. And he did not, he was someone for whom the, the, the scenario, the elaboration of the fantasy was key. He didn't, he did not sexually, directly sexually assault any of his victims, but he, but I think he was fixated within the scenario on Josephine the most. Raider confessed that he spent some time with Josephine. He told her she would soon be joining her family and likely this was to increase her fear because the fear, the terror is what excited him. Don't worry, baby, he tells her. You'll be in heaven tonight with the rest. Before he hung her, he asked her if the family had a camera. Raider liked to take pictures of himself wearing stolen women's underwear and various poses of bondage. So perhaps he wanted to use the Otara camera to take memento pictures of Josephina hanging from the basement pipe. But she told her murderer that the family didn't own a camera. He partially disrobed her, hung her, then masturbated onto her bare legs. He would tell the judge that he remembered having problems with her because of her hair was in the way. He would later bring up the images of this murder in a taunting letter to local police. He wrote, Josephina, when I hung her, really turned me on, her pleading for mercy. Then the rope took hold. She, helpless, staring at me with wide terror, filled the eyes, the rope getting tighter and tighter. You mentioned that, I think uh, Nick mentioned that, that about the sadism. It's worth knowing the key with sadism is uh, not necessarily cruelty. We, we, covered, uh, we covered Glattman and we covered Dean Coral, who's, I think, about as brutal and vicious as any killer. And Dean Coral was uh, a, a sadist. But it seems to me that um, the Raider here is a perfect exa- example of what a true sexual sadist, which is that the what he's seeking and the and the real the arousal that he gets is specific to the response of the victim, not so much what he does as much as how the victim responds to it. What really, uh, what really apparently sexually excited Dennis Rader here the most was the the expression of terror in the eyes of Josephine when he hanged her in the basement, and specifically I think what appealed to him in the some some of these things that he. You know the drawings and the other the the the, the scenarios that he, that that sort of helped develop this in the literature that he read was the the expression of terror in the victim and certainly that's not entirely different than, than with Glattman but it's it's not and it's a function of control but it's specifically that expression of terror and and that was that was what uh, really was the the the, the high point. Dennis Rader here, and and what really shows him to be what they call a true sexual sadist. You're exactly right with that. The terror in the eyes, the expression of the victim, and Josephine will be the first one that Rader tells us that he told would die. You know, he by saying you're going to be joining your family soon, that's telling the victim you're going to die. 
There's nothing you can do about it. You are helpless. This goes back to his childhood fascination of what turned him on about the woman tied onto the railroad tracks and the train getting closer and closer and closer and the expression of her face and her eyes, the terror in her eyes and on her face that there's nothing that she can do. This is going to happen. And you're, he, he, he did achieve sexual pleasure from that. And, and I'm glad that you said something earlier here, Simeon, that one thing that gets lost when we talk about Raider two, well, not us clearly, but others is the, the pedophile nature that, that he exhibits. He is, he is a pedophile and that gets lost in the sauce a lot here because there are so many other victims. What I see here is when given the opportunity when given this opportunity to uh, he's got four victims at his mercy with inside the Otero home. And the one that he chooses to spend the most time with is an 11 year old girl, Josephine. And what does he do? He takes her down to the basement and he, he hangs her and he's in a weird way going back again to his teenage years his early teenage years when he's sneaking down to the basement to do what he refers to as self bondage on himself three months later he moves on again looking for a new victim and he fancies on Catherine bright who lived a little house in east 13th street for only a year she was 21 uh, once the semester at the university of kansas and Lawrence had left her missing her family. She had come back and worked a little bit in the Coleman factory, actually, that Julia Otero had worked for a month. By her family, she met, met her cousins. Uh, they're, they're quite a big, the Bright family was quite, quite big. Um, she, she enjoyed looking after children. The time what Raider was thinking of using as his MO was that he was a Wichita State University student. He would carry books to her door and tell her he needed a quiet place to study. Then he would force his way in. Before he knocked, he pulled on his rubber gloves. His plan went to pieces immediately. No one answered the knock on impulse. He smashed through the glass of the back door and then panicked a little. He realized she might come home see the glass and run. He cleaned it up as best as he could. He'd heard her talking to someone. It was a man. Raider began to sweat again. He could hear them laughing. He had no place to run, but he had the 22 and the 357 Magnum in a shoulder holster. So he stepped towards them. Again, he uses a different MO. I'm wanted in California, Raider told them. They've got wanted posters out on me i need a car i need money i just need to get to new york i need to tie you up but i don't want to hurt you that's when radio realized he, he had made another mistake mr bind torture kill had bought no rope kevin was there also uh kevin was quite a small fella actually but but again it, it creates a completely different uh, dynamic Raider would learn later the man's name was Kevin. Tie her hands, he told Kevin. Kevin did so. He walked them to the bedroom by the front door and told Kevin to lie down. He tied his hands together and tied his feet to a bedpost. 
Do you have any money? He asked. Kevin gave up three dollars from his right shirt pocket. He wanted them, as you said, to just think it was a robbery that they would survive if they behaved. Calm them. He thought he got them to tell him where to find their keys. He would need transportation after he finished. He turned on the stereo. He knew now from Project Will Max there would be strangling sounds, so he wanted to kill them in separate rooms. He did not want one of them to hear gagging noises and start thrashing. He decided to kill the man first to put down the bigger threat. He had done the same in January. He looped a nylon around Kevin's throat and began to pull, and that's when Project Light Out fell apart. Kevin broke his leg bindings, jumped up, and charged, his hands still tied behind him. Raider pulled his 22 and shot Kevin in the head. He fell and blood poured onto the floor. Raider st- stood amazed. He ran to the next room. The girl was strangling and screaming. What have you done to my brother? It's interesting that, that uh, Kevin Bright survives this, this, this encounter, I would say, almost he's, he's, uh, remarkably. He, he thought that Kevin was dead, but Kevin leaped up after being shot, charged again broke the bindings on his wrist and grabbed at the gun. For a few moments, Raider thought he would die right there. Kevin got his hand on the trigger and tried to pull it. They fought, grunting and straining, until Raider broke free and shot Kevin in the face, dropping him again. Raider ran back to the woman. She was thrashing. But while Raider was in the room, Kevin manages to get away. So once Raider is with Catherine, He's he's he is scared now because of the ruckus that's that's gone on. This is a more difficult situation than with the Oteros. She tries to fight back, tries to get away, but he stabbed her in the back once, twice again, then spun her around and stabbed her in the gut. And she still fought. God, he thought, how much stabbing does it take? In the detective magazines, they said to go up from the kidney and the lungs. He stabbed her as they lunged around the room, sparing the blood on the walls. At last, she went down, and he heard a sound from the next room. Still, he thought, Raider ran to where he left the brother. The brother was gone. He ran to the front door. It was open. He thought it was dead meat. He stepped out, blood covering his hand and clothes, soaking in suede, suede shoes. He saw the brother running up the street. The game is up, he thought. He ran back to the woman. She lay groaning, blood coming out of 11 wounds. He thought to shoot her, but he decided to run. Was there something, uh, I, 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 I don't actually know this. I know eventually the, 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 the uh, authorities connect these, these murders, but the, 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 this, this along with the Otero family, this happens in 1974, from January to, January to the Otero family, this in April, was this something that was that were these two crimes immediately uh, seen as 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 by the same uh, uh, perpetrator, or were they not, were they were they seen as different initially? No, and unfortunately, and weirdly enough, they thought the terror family murder was gang related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that this was different. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think because given the time period and the location in our country, no offense to anybody and. You know, Kansas, I'm in Ohio, so uh, we're not that different. But um, I think given the time frame, the Oteros, I, I think given their 
ethnic background that that was uh, kind of an assumption that was made by some old time cops uh, with the with the bright the, with the bright case and her brother. The thing that was weird here is that even later when Dennis Rader starts communicating with police and with the newspapers, he never points to this as being one of his murders because he knows that he left a survivor that somebody had survived it and could potentially uh, be a witness that could point to him or identify him later. So he, while he at some point will decide that he wants to start taking credit for the Otero case and for other cases, he never includes this in his communications for that purpose. It's one of those cases that from my understanding that they didn't even link this one to all of the other killings until um, either closer to his arrest or even after he was arrested. So it was in October 1974, six months after Catherine's murder, the police arrested someone for the Otero murders. This incensed Raider. He hated the idea of someone else getting credit for his crimes. To get some attention back on himself, he called the Wichita Eagle and told a reporter about a hidden letter in an engineering book at the Wichita Library. The reporter did not scoop the story as Raider had hoped, but rather called the police who did find the letter tucked in the book. The letter is riddled with Raider's spelling and grammatical errors, boasted of Otara's crimes in such a way as to prove that he was the murderer, although perhaps the spelling mistakes were a little bit of a cover. Some people thought that the, the language was doctored a little bit to make it uh, seem like someone else. So he, Raider really needed recognition for his work and wrote, I did it myself with none's help. It was in this letter that he provided the police impressed with his chosen nickname of BTK. This letter would be the first of 19 he would send to the police and the press seeking attention and respect for his crimes. This is when he starts writing, this is around when he starts writing the, the, uh, the letters. First letter that he reaches out to police and describes the Otero murders at great length. And this, this to me really points out two things. One thing that we've already covered is his ego, right? He, he will not, his ego will not allow somebody else to take credit for uh, the Otero murders. Okay. But the thing that I don't think that we've honed in on too, is that I think his lack of intelligence, it's, I understand the 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 uh, conflict between his ego and his intelligence, but what there's no more perfect murder than killing someone. Killing someone and getting away with it is not a perfect murder. Killing someone, getting away with it, and somebody else doing the time for that crime and no, nobody investigating that crime anymore—that's the perfect murder. He, who knows how close he was to that being the situation. And who knows how many more, I wonder in, in some weird way, him reaching out and, and pointing out to police that these are not your guys, that it may have in some weird way saved a couple of lives. Yeah. One of the funny things about Raider is, is that Raider's, you could say his mistakes or his, his ridiculous ego, his, his kind of, egotistical compulsions throughout the case obviously when he gets caught this is even more the case 
with the floppy disk, but they they do they they do function in some ways in a really essential role in 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 saving lives and eventually him getting caught. It's not like with Ed Kemper where he may never have been caught had he not turned himself in, or or like some of the like the Zodiac where he's never been identified. It, it I I do very much agree with you on this that he's not very smart. Uh, he has a high opinion of himself, but he's not particularly smart. And he, and, uh, and his, he's also someone for whom, beyond even just ego being essential, he has this, this, this ridiculous thing about and coming up with all these, not even just BTK. BTK was the one that caught on, the one he chose. He chose several ridiculous nicknames for himself. Uh, the Wichita Strangler, I think the Garot Phantom was one. I mean, he had all these silly names that he sent in. The Poetic Strangler, and the guy couldn't even oh, write yes. a letter. The Poetic Strangler, he couldn't even write a single letter. And guess, and I, and I understand that, of course, some of that <laughs> language was doctored. You know, it was manipulated by him. And I, again, I believe he he probably borrowed that from somebody like Zodiac or somebody else. But that some of it wasn't doctored because the his wife has said that she did notice when those communications at some point were made public that she noted the some of the um, misspellings and some of the grammatical errors and thought that they were similar to Dennis's other communications and, and things that she has seen him write in the past. It's funny because you think that with with a more intelligent person, they would would maybe be, uh, be be putting that in there to to fake it, to try to to try to make them come off that way. But it sounds like that all those misspellings and some of the other stuff like that was just the way he wrote naturally or what he wrote normally. Yeah, to be honest, that's actually what I thought that, that he was he was he was doctoring on on purpose. It, it is at this time, you know, on December. Uh, 1974 where this becomes a big story in Wichita and, and people get really really scared so two months after the cops found BTK's messaging library the Sun published a story in which Henkel revealed that she had received a copy of the BTK letter from an anonymous source she reported that BTK stood for buying torture and kill and the murderer had threatened to strike again the story frightened people as the police feared but it also permitted them to take precautions Henkel has written the story in part because she thought people had the right to know. She actually consulted a private sector psychologist before she published. Well, the, the cops worried that revealing the secret might encourage BTK to kill again. The psychologist argued the opposite because BTK probably craved publicity. Keeping the secret might prompt him to kill. By the time the son broke the story, police had already interviewed more than 1,500 people about the Otero murder. Now the tips lit up. People suspected their neighbors and co-workers. Some turned in their fathers or sons. None of the tips panned out. The one-year anniversary of the Otero killings passed. Yeah, and so now we have the, the case is kind of becoming very public to the, the locals anyway. And one thing that you guys had touched on earlier that, that I found fascinating, the, the public reaction to these murders that are happening is that it was made public that that in some of these cases and then what were 
becoming called the BTK killings because of Dennis telling us, you know, giving us his nickname. There's nothing more annoying than the kid in school who gave himself a nickname. But um, the one thing that the locals were doing is that it was made aware to them that the killer was cutting the phone lines. And so let's say you were out at the bowling alley or you were at work, especially if you were a single woman or a woman that was coming home and and anticipating coming home to an empty home. What the locals, a lot of the smart ones were doing is they would call their house before they would leave the location. And if they got a busy signal or if they got, you know, we cannot complete your call, anything like that. I, I don't know how the phone lines would have operated back then in that location. But from my understanding, there would have been some indication. The phone wouldn't have just rang and rang and rang. Um, but that was a tactic that the locals were using to safeguard themselves. That's kind of a, a canny thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that is worth pointing out also about this that must have been really shocking for people is that, you know, uh, I mentioned how this took place in Kansas. Our last episode, we did, you know, The Son of Sam. And while people weren't, obviously, The Son of Sam scared New York City as much as, um, in some ways, as much as, almost as much as 9 mm-hmm. 11. But the thing was, is that you would, you, you say that it, it followed on all this, you know, the sense of New York falling apart, all this, all this crime, all these news reports. That it would, it would seem to be something that people would not have been. You know, so uh, of course, here we go again. But of course, in in Wichita, you know, even though Kansas does have somewhat of a violent history at the time of the Civil War, you know, in particular, they they had this sense in, in their self uh, imagining, but also in reality, up to that point, that they they'd never seen anything like this. We're talking about the the, the Otero murders, but then you have the, this continues on. They so so there's nothing that would prepare anyone for how to deal with this kind of situation or any situation that's like this uh, in this kind of, uh, in this kind of uh, city, this kind of region. And um, so people were kind of having to just wing it. And it seems like some of the women, you know, they're doing, 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 make, doing some good moves uh, to call, you know, when it came to their home, but this is something certainly that you, you know, that that seemed to come out of nowhere whether it did or not that's a different story so a few months later he goes on to kill shirley the ann ralford who lives with her her sons Uh, they were actually quite sick at the time all the members of the family were sick but he he showed no remorse for them and within four years raided and murdered seven people uh, he was, he, but he'd grown tired and wanted more fame. A few months afterwards, he sent communications to the Rota police. Radio liked watching himself on television. He favored the news media that had the best signal reception of him on television. The Ghostbusters task force uh, gets set up uh, towards the end of the 70s and the you know, early 80s. But it wasn't actually until 1984 that he kills again. It's worth it's worth pointing out also about the Shirley Vian case. I saw I saw this on a, on a program that uh, the murder of Shirley Vian, the Raven murder, was witnessed by her five year old son and uh, Steve. And 
I saw him on a program. He would go on to become basically a, just we totally have his whole life complete mess. You know, just a heroin addict, you know, itinerant, just moving around and losing track of, you know, often, you know, large periods of time in his mind. And there is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of criminals who tried to use this as an excuse. And there is some, but Steve Relford said that while he was in a, at a, at a, at a, I think at a mental hospital or something later in life, that he was determined to have uh, had what is known as a dissociative identity, sort of the multiple, what commonly known as multiple personalities that he had, that he, due to, due to a fracturing at the, at the time when he was high, when he saw this, I, I can't speak to the veracity of this, but it seemed, it seemed that, that at the age of five, seeing this whole thing, utterly his psyche was not prepared to deal with it. And, and he may, according to some of those uh, clinicians, he may have had that, uh, developed that. And, uh, and, and uh, that is, I think, one of the real tragic side notes of this is that he, ha- he saw his mother raped and murdered by the BTK. Yeah, BTK also wanted to kill him as well, but I think decided just to quickly get out of there as well. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real tragedy, but I think that was always part of his thing. Like, he liked to have people watch and experience it before killing them. He, he also killed uh, v- Vicky Wagley as well. 80s, I think. Yeah, this is, this is in the 80s. Was she the one that lived near him? Yeah. Was the older lady that lived near him? His final yeah, victim, right. right. Yeah, yeah there, this was his final victim. There was that victim that lived uh, somewhat near him, maybe a couple blocks over. And I know that uh, his, his wife had expressed to, Dennis's wife had expressed to him, um, the fear that, uh, that hitting so close to home, uh, for her. And it's what a, what a weird and strange situation to try to analyze. I know that there's probably a little bit in each and every one of us that wants to grab the lady and shake her and go, why didn't you see this? You know, she, she had caught him in one of his, his self bondage, acts at least i i believe on more than one occasion i i I think he says twice but i i can't i can't say that with any level of certainty so i'll just say at least once raider's wife right yeah yeah and um and then you know she she noticed that his um that his i they had a recording of his voice when he called in uh to report one of the crimes and she noted that it sounded like him uh, because they played it on the news. And then, but it, you know, as a second thought, she, I believe she followed it up when talking to him saying something like, but you, you know, but you sound like a lot of people. And also she noticed again, the misspellings and grammatical errors and the, the communications look, no one at the end of the day, no one believes that they're living with a monster uh, unless it's obvious. And here in this situation, it, it wasn't obvious, but what a, what a weird family and home situation to try to sit here a hundred, several hundred miles away and try to analyze. It does seem to be a, a, a recurring thing you see with some of these guys, you know, when we, when we get to Gacy, you know, he, he, you know, he was obviously in the closet and he was, he was married to uh, two women and at different times. And you sort of wonder the same thing with them. Uh, but you know, it's it, it it is. I think sometimes people just they just they think we'll figure it out. You know, 
And of course, back then, especially, you know, marriage is, uh, you know, making the marriage last. That's the important thing. I think it's really interesting that once he was found out to be the BTK, that the marriage ended immediately. I mean, I'm maybe I don't know, you know, how it generally happens in all of these cases, but it did seem like as soon as even before he was in the court, as soon as it, people suspected him as the BCK, she ended the marriage immediately, which is which I found quite curious. Not that you know the obvious signs of a difficult marriage were apparent, but it, but perhaps if she had seen some of those kinds of things uh, within their home in terms of his his her. Uh, his erotic fantasy or, or, or even noticing his handwriting in the letters and, and things like that. Perhaps maybe she, she saw a little bit more than she's letting on. And she, she felt once the, the hammer went down that they actually, you know, yeah, I, I do think that he's BZK. Well, and it, I think too, the other thing that might have pushed her to do that so quickly and probably would have prompted all of us to do the exact same is that it was so obvious, so obvious from Jump Street that he was guilty. That that as, very quickly after the arrest, I mean, they 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 traced him through the the use of that computer, and then and then he starts to confess things rather quickly. And I'm sure that they they probably even backed it up, possibly with DNA. I don't know that to be true, but but again, he starts singing like a bird. It it, it goes back to one of his flaws as, and I say flaws because he fancied himself as some kind of, uh, as something special, right. As, as, as this individual that's able, able to act covertly. And he, he fancied himself almost as some kind of like spy. These are his little spy missions and each one of the, his would be victims or people that he was, that he is uh, keeping watch of encasing their homes he referred to them as pjs and he thought of himself as some kind of minotaur he, he actually called himself a, a minotaur and, and he called other serial killers minotaurs so clearly he thinks he's something special and it, at the end of the day he clearly is not anything special he's he's just disgusting and gross and he but his flaw is yeah, he he's he starts singing like a bird because he wants to know. He wants everybody to know this this is not only am I capable of this, but I did this and I got away with it for so long and I tricked the cops and I was playing all these cat cat and mouse games with the police for years and I was playing cat and mouse games with the media and with the general public and it here I was this whole time. Um he th he thought he was better, smarter and and stronger than than everybody else and and obviously we know that that is not the case a lot of the a lot of the silly games that he played in what he thought were cat and mouse games were he was putting in like these clues that would be would go unnoticed to everybody sherlock holmes wouldn't have been able to pick up on this stuff because it didn't mean anything to anybody other than him you know where he he'd try to oh the, the BTK operates in the realm of threes. Well, yeah, well, great. Well, you can, you can hint at that or clue us to that in your letters as much as you want, but, but none of us are, would be able to pick up on that because it doesn't mean anything 
uh, one to the case or, or two to anybody else. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the, the whole thing, the spy. It, 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 he had, the way he conceived of a lot of this is he thought he was in this sort of kind of like spy and detective game with the cops. And mm-hmm. it was pretty much entirely, you know, in his head in terms of just how it was being conceived of. He was conceiving of it differently than anyone else was. And I think the only person who has since come to understand, you said the, 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 the three, the number three, Come, even that was that um, recently the criminologist Catherine Ramsland wrote a book about him and uh, she had been corresponding with him and and he kind of tried to set all the you know tried to set up all these games that they would play and she figured out quickly because you know she's actually unlike him actually very you know very extraordinary but the thing is is that um, that was the 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 the, the, the he imagined this this uh, spy game that everyone else was in on but of course he it was it was all him just playing with himself and uh and and uh the only aspect that they were involved in were trying to solve the crime but but in terms of the the actual the 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 game that he had with the numbers and the the spies and all that stuff that was just in his imagination yeah and he he even referenced things like um i I kept giving these clues and dropping these hints to the police because I wanted them. I, I knew that they would be aware that there was a superior alpha minotaur in their jurisdiction. (laughs) Like, first of all, nobody's calling these serial killers minotaurs other than this guy (laughs) that I'm aware of. Um, And superior to what? I don't know. He's, he's, from my experience, there's very few of these types that communicate out of want and out of some pleasure-seeking adventure with police or media that don't end up getting caught by doing that. So superior to what, I don't know. And um, and in a lot of ways, I think that the, the way that he thought of himself as some type of alpha in this situation, in his BTK world, is probably because he wasn't much of an alpha in his real life. And I think that bleeds in a little bit to parts of his real life after he does the Vicky Waverly killing and the the Dolores killing. He's just continuing serving as president of the church. Now he has a day job as Park City Code Enforcement Officer. As an enforcer, he was charged with encouraging the community residents to follow the guidelines in the neighborhood. This included petty issues like the length of summer's lawn. A raider was once seen kneeling down on a resident's lawn with a ruler in his hand to measure the length of the grass to rounding up the dogs that had broken loose from the fence. The job was meant to make more carrot than stick, meaning the code enforcers were meant to serve as friendly reminders to the community outlies to step back into the harmony of the neighborhood, but Raider was particularly tough on his uh, on his beat. Well, one thing is this is he 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 went a period of time without committing any murders, a significant period of time. And one of the reasons he was able to do that was because he had these 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 fantasies he played out on his own with you know sort of with pictures and stuff. But what part of it was also that particularly his job as the compliance officer, you know, making people, you know, trying to get people to all these rules about their lawn and as soon as all their dogs. This was a particular thing that that filled some of the same function as the murders in, in his 
trying to mess with people and control people and exercise this power. And apparently, you know, I was sort of thinking when I read about this, how many places in the country a guy like this could have gotten away with some of the stuff he did? Because at one point he, he took someone's dog to the pound and had it put down because they didn't follow some regulation. And they could have, you know, this could have been, you know, done hours later. And then, of course, he's also finding people for, for, for their grass not being the right a centimeter off. So I would think if you did this in New York or something like that, you, you might have someone come after you. Uh, Nazi, that you could only really be in a small town kind of thing. So with the, the dog, the woman actually decided to fight these tickets in court. Her attorney, Danny Seville, was shocked by the amount of detail and pettiness Raider included in the paperwork. He said Raider spent hours and hours and days on just trying to prove these four tickets. He said, I do criminal defense and I have major felonies like on big issues, but I don't spend the amount of time and collect the amount of paperwork that Raider contributed to, to, to that particular case. And this really, as I said, this really did, this did, uh, this did fulfill some of some of the role that, that his, his projects, I think you call them, that, he, that his, 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 the planning and then the execution of his murders fulfilled. They, it was kind of part of the same thing. Another thing about Raider is, is that some killers you find they, their their crimes are compulsive. They 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 have a hard time prevent stopping themselves from doing some of these things, and uh, from just you know, Canberra has just said that I don't know if that's true or not, but he they, they eventually would just lose control of his rage, and he you know, some people they, they they it's like it's like they they can't not do it. Raider though, I think one of the reasons why he's I think a, when you see in in, in true crime world a particularly loathed figure, we will find him particularly insufferably horrible, not just for the quality of his crimes, but for his personality. And partly, I think, the reason is because I don't think he, this was compulsive. I think that he that it was just something that he got off and undoing, did everything he could, whether with the murders or with the compliance job, to just, you know, take control of people and just lord it over people and be this tyrannical figure. Like, I guess you mentioned the Minotaur. The Minotaur rules the labyrinth in, in Greek mythology. And uh, you know, hunts uh, people in it. It's, uh, I, I don't think that he was ever out of control or, or, or lost control of these urges. He just seemed to. It's just he loved being the world's biggest dick. <laughs> well, and I think that he was such a wimp that that I, I think in some ways that that prevented him. There was probably a lot of things that prevented him from just spiraling completely out of control. But one of those I think is he was controlled himself by by being such a wimp. I mean, I think that that's why he cased these joints to the, the level and yeah. the extent that he did, he was always concerned about there being a male and or a dog at any situation. And look, he cased these joints longer after he screwed up at the Otero place. And I think that at some point he probably lost a little bit of, the desire to put himself in this situation because he was getting older and uh, he was able to achieve whatever it is that he wanted to achieve through a few different things through, through items, pictures, uh, ladies undergarments and such that he had collected over the years from different victims, as well as he was really getting off on the communication with police. And, and he, 
you know, that he wanted to be in some weird ways. You know, I, I actually had seen online years ago, somebody kind of uh, really giving somebody else the business when they had suggested, well, well, BTK could have been the Zodiac. There was a lot of things that he did that were similar. And I think he mocked a lot of the things that the Zodiac did. I don't think I'm not here to say that he was the Zodiac at all. I would never believe that or push that that theory forward an inch at all. But what the Zodiac seemed to enjoy was the not only the notoriety and his moniker being getting credit for his crimes, but more so the the threat that he posed to the city and to the city's people. And on, I believe on a lot of levels, BTK, Dennis Rader, wanted to achieve that level of a, of a threat to the city. He was, he was one time at one time very upset that he wasn't receiving, that BTK wasn't receiving the media attention on a local level and the national level that he thought that he deserved. And when he didn't receive that, he, he, he would send in these things to, and I believe it was, he calls it a cat and mouse game with, with police. I look at it more as his lame attempts to try to terrorize uh, all of these people and, and scare the city. Nick would never com- compare him to the Zodiac Killer because Nick respects Zodiac too much, I think. That, that's not, <laughs> not the case at all. <laughs> I have to say that, that, that the Zodiac did make codes that people still haven't broke yet. Last year, someone lo- said they did, but it doesn't look like... <laughs> you had to at least say the Zodiac was was presenting things that 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 were that were at least had some level of design to them but the thing the thing i always think with with raider is i'm not the only person to say this i've heard another podcaster say this is that he seems like like a like a really lame salesman who who's one of those guys that that they they consult networks or, or studios consult to try to get the kind of the there's kind of perspective on, on what on a TV show or, or a movie or, or, or some sort of product mm-hmm. that they're doing. And because he, he, a lot of what he what I think he's doing with these letters, yeah, he wants the attention, but he's trying to he's trying to burnish and manage his, the, you know, his his reputation and his and, and the uh, the reputation of the product. Because yeah, yeah. It, now go on. Because no, the thing about the, 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 that BTK is it is, it's like, a, you know, it's a product line. It's uh, presenting BTK, you know, and, and, <laughs> and it's, 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 it's not quite the, the alternate identity as, as the, 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 the Zodiac or the Son of Sam, but it is, it is kind of his, his, his whole product, his, the whole campaign for his product line. That, and, you know, and it's not primary because primary is the murders. But it is it is something that he does want the attention. He does want the the uh, the ego stroked. So just as you guys have been saying, by the years roll on, and by two thousand and four, nearly thirteen years after Dolores murdered, the Wichita Eagle ran a story about the BTK, speculating the killer was dead or imprisoned. They ran the story on the thirteenth anniversary of the Ataro family slayings. Shortly after the Eagle published the article about him, Raider sent a letter to the editor claiming responsibility for the unsolved 1986 murder of Vicky Wagley. And, you know, in this time, he's feeling angsty. He's feeling uncelebrated, as you guys have said. The Eagle and other local news outlets 
Uh, Nola Falston from this district attorney's office said of Raider that he started to play these little games of sending us on scavenger hunts around the city, putting cereal boxes. All of Raider's packages were placed inside cereal boxes and a nod to the phonetic connect to his position as a cereal killer. Cereal killer boxes filled with dolls that were poised in positions of the victims and pieces of jewelry for some of the victims. He would hide them in the city and then he would call the media and he'd send them a little note, a little clue where they would find these things. Randy Stone, a detective with the Forensic Computer Crimes Unit, felt certain that Raider's frequency of contact would soon lead to his arrest. He said there was a lot of confidence that if he kept going, he would eventually catch him. There were so many detectives assigned to the BZK case that Stone thought everybody in the department, I'm sure to some extent, hoped to be the one to get the magic bullet that would find him. In this flurry of cat and mouse gamemanship, Raider substantiated his claims of being BZK by inserting pieces of evidence that he had tucked away in one of his hidey holes. He didn't limit his taunting to just victims jury. He would sometimes include the driver's license or even Polaroid photos he took during the actual game. This kind of exchange went on for just about a year. And while Raider thought he was the cat toying with the mouse, Raider disastrously underestimated the mouse. Detective Ken Landwehr, the Sedgwick County homicide detective, was no mouse detective. Landwehr strategically outweighed Raider at his own game. Landwehr began to build a relationship of sorts with Raider. Raider would send coded messages through news outlets. His sole aim was to keep the BTK talking, keep him captivated by his own so-called brilliance. BTK would uh, make a mistake, they thought. And a year after sending his letter to the Wichita Eagle, Raider made his first mistake. He wrote to a local television station asking them to investigate a package he allegedly left at the local Home Depot on North Woodlawn. But Raider hadn't actually left the package inside the store, but rather in the back of a pickup truck parked in the Home Depot parking lot that belonged to a Home Depot employee. But the employee never even saw the package. It was his girlfriend who discovered it several days later. And when she showed her boyfriend they opened it to discover a cereal box with several documents with poorly spelled words and appalling grammar seeming to discuss the murder but the young couple just thought the whole thing was a joke and threw it away it wasn't until the police began asking questions at his work that the home depot employee mentioned the mysterious package from the back of the truck fortunately the police were able to retrieve the package from the home trash can among the documents found within this card package with detailed plans for future murders a gold chain and other things. As with his patient, Raider had used an old cereal box to package his treasures. The question Raider asked is if it was safe, if it was secure for him to send a floppy disk to communicate with the police. The document read that if Raider would could not be traced through a floppy disk, Landwehr was to place an ad in the local paper with the message, Rex, it will be okay. They did do that. They posted the lie and Raider took the bait. Two weeks after the Rex ad was placed on the 16th of February 2005, the police department received that what was to become his final correspondence to the police. When Landwehr returned the evidence over to his forensic computer detective, Randy Stone opened the disc, read only, this is a test. It's, it's then posted directions for the police to refer to CX5 index card from the previous package, the one found in the pickup truck. For the instructions on how to proceed with the communication, Raider, sitting in his suburban home, faithfully serving his church every Sunday, felt he was king, supreme, sitting in his lair, spinning a web for the police. Raider was amusing himself, but 
Stone was good at his game as well. He he said that I opened it up. There was one file, and from that we were able to identify that the person who last saved the document was logged into his computer under the account name of Dennis. And Langway was ha- having some fun of his own. He scoured the Home Depot security cameras until he found the time and date that Raider dropped off the package in the employee's pickup truck. The camera was not close enough to distinguish any features on the unidentified man seen leaving the package in the back of the truck. However, they very clearly depicted a black Grand Ch- Cherokee pulling up to the truck and then showed the driver of the Cherokee getting out and the, surveying the truck. So now Langway had the make and model of BTK's car. Additionally, Stone was still gathering information from the floppy disk. Didn't it, didn't it, one of the funniest things about this is that, didn't he say, didn't he, didn't he uh, think he had some agreement with the cops to not actually investigate the floppy disk if he sent it to them? Yeah, he, he asked the cops, uh, if they could send, if they could detect it, if they if they if they could use the floppy disk to find out where he was or who he was, and they obviously they said no, and then he just he, so he sent them anyway. <laughs> yeah, and then he 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 voiced his disappointment in the detective when after his arrest he was like, you know, why would you lie to me? Um, <laughs> You know, like it, like they were playing some game of chess, and that you're supposed to be like, you know, like golf etiquette almost, right? Um, you mark your own score, and and don't uh, don't use your foot wedge to get out of the sand. Uh, he, it was, and I, why would he expect there to be any form of etiquette or honesty in the investigation when his, all the crimes he's committing? I mean, the, the horrific nature of the crimes that he's committing and the deception that he, you know, one thing that, that fascinates me is how, I think how little some of these serial killers understand themselves. Um, and I've had the privilege of, of, of speaking with John Douglas several times, and he's come on our show, true crime garage a few times. And one thing that that's fascinated me and and i asked mr douglas this i said you know i i believe that a lot of these guys talk at length with you a lot of times because they are hoping that you might be able to give them some answers you you want answers the fbi wants answers from them to gather insights about who they are and what drives them and how they do what they do but at the same time i think some of these guys are wanting answers from you can you tell me why I'm this way. And maybe Dennis Rader doesn't know exactly why he is this way or why he is the way that, that he was and what led him to some of uh, these, to all of his crimes and his murders. But one thing that fascinated me about Rader in particular was that he does point out, you know, after lockup, he points out several times about how, you know, I did love my family. I did love my wife. I did love my children. And, to me, that just points out his complete lack of the understanding of the word love. He, he has the inability to truly love anything or anyone other than himself and his activities that he wishes to engage in because a person that loves somebody else, truly loves somebody else, would not do this level of deception, would not be committing these crimes, right? It's not a situation of, 
well, they'll never find out because I'll never get caught. My intent is never to get caught. No, you, you, you put them at a level of risk uh, that, that none of us that would put our real loved ones at risk. One of the things about psychopathic individuals, from murderers down to regular people, is, is that I, I genuinely do, do think they don't have any real sense for you know, the gravity, well, in this case of, the, of violent people, the gravity of what they do, the, any real nature of it, uh, and or or really in any any real ability to 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 really understand the connections that most people really feel and value between people, including in their family, because his family is just an extension of his ego. It's like the dog, and and to some degree, some of these people can understand on a baseline intellectual level what they've done but only like a definitional sense. They don't have any real understanding of the gravity of what it, it means for, for surely my son to have seen her his mother murdered at the age of five. It's just, it's just another audience, you know? And so, so I, I think these people, I mean, and sometimes they do want to know the origin because in his case, it seems to be uh, biological. It seems to be uh, a, a, a case of, of, a, of a natural, uh, uh, a person set apart in this way, but uh, uh, we don't know exactly. But they don't really have any real understanding, in, in any in any real way of of the, uh, of uh, of either what they're doing or of you're right the love of actual loving your family, actual uh, you know they 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 they, they their uh, their brains are very heavily you have to say they're 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 heavily compromised to their sense of, of of life and other people uh you know and for whatever reason i think it's really odd that the police said that he thought the police wouldn't lie but they, they can lie to serial killers <laughs> I, just thought, I thought that was again that, that goes to show his just complete lack of intelligence he, he wants to sell himself and Simeon's exactly right he's spot on he, he Dennis Rader created a brand and I think that was part of it for him all along that he he wanted to be this he's a nobody he's a nothing he's weak he's not an alpha he's 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 uh, somebody that you walk by on the street and you forget about three and a half seconds later. It, and he wanted to be this bigger, larger than what he was personality, this, this weird uh, misunderstood, unable for us regular people to understand this brilliant alpha minotaur, this superior minotaur that like, to, to call himself a minotaur is just so bizarre. Other, and then, then to refer to other serial killers as minotaurs and then to tell us, it, this is uh, from his communications with Kathleen Ramsland. He, he says that I'm dropping these clues and these hints to the police so that they know that there is a superior minotaur in their jurisdiction. Not only, not only are they dealing with the serial killer slash minotaur, but this one is a superior one, like the likes that we've never seen before. I'm the BTK. He created his own moniker and, and, and all this. I mean, it's, it's silliness and, and it's, it's completely 
weird and bizarre behavior. And I think it points out just to how little and small and nothing he, he really was. And unfortunately 10 people lose their lives uh, simply because he has this very weird sexual perversion. That's all it is. He's driven by sexual perversion. His his sadism, (laughs) pedophilia, um, (laughs) It, it 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 is every one of those things is what drove him to do these again i cannot get over the fact that when left alone with the <laughs> oh otero the, the otero is that he spends the most time with the 11 year old daughter when when he talks about referencing again this is another zodiac reference when he talks about referencing sec, uh slaves in the afterlife of victims that he had killed he says that joseph otero would be his bodyguard julia the mother would be his servant and he would choose the children as his sex toys i mean come on this guy he paints he he wants to he wants to tell us something that he is completely not he's he's not special he's not superior he's uh, i i'm frankly i'm disgusted that he's still breathing the same air as the rest of us you're not the only one i mean he's he's in he's in jail in kansas i mean he he is a, I think it's interesting. I, I, he's a, there's a lot, there are um, people who couldn't, who kind of have their own particular examples of particular people they found particularly difficult to deal with. For me, I'll give you uh, the, the Leonard Lake and Charles Ng in California. For me, are those, to, are those guys. And they're, and they're, they're somewhat similar uh, in some ways. They're sadists too. But Raider also is someone who I think just really infuriates people personally. And <laughs> because you know beyond because i and one of the things is is also like you see a lot of these other guys you know raider seems to have this this uh you know he associates himself with this whole history of these other killers even gacy wouldn't do that you know the the, the this this strange thing he has where he thinks the the cops are with him in this game and he thinks he's he's part of this long illustrious line of people who are like him and and it's, it, it is it is it is baffling because because a to the degree that any of these people are remarkable, uh, Raider is certainly not one of them. But um, but it, 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 he he also is. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but he also is someone who there are certain things about him personally that are really really annoying, like how he he wrote these horrible poems. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of like Dr. Seuss. And mm-hmm. and there's a woman named, I think, what's her name? Anna Williams, I think it was, or someone who he met, who he had designs on uh, tra- on ambushing in her house and killing her. And she never came home one the night he was there. And he's so annoyed by the fact that she did not come home, you know, for their special encounter that he writes this ridiculous poem about it. And <laughs> I think that I don't I, I don't remember the, if, if this was something his wife said or something that was remarked upon was that he did not write anything like this for his wife. <laughs> but uh, he, not, not only that, he didn't write a, a large portion of the actual poem. He I believe he stole it's a lot of plagiarism. I believe he stole oh, yeah. a lot of it from something else and changed a handful <laughs> of the words and tried to sell it off as his own. I mean, the guy, the guy is a, is the biggest, one of the biggest frauds out there um, in, in his, <laughs> in his fake life that he tried to sell to us and in his superior minotaur life that he, you know, fantasy world. Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? That's the name of the poem. I mean, it is, it is just, I'm pretty sure a lot of it is lifted. Uh, although I don't know if anyone's ever used the phrase hot with propension. It was really terrible. But I don't know if there's, there's some of it, it seems, in my reading it, it seems like it's like, it's like if Dr. Seuss was a murderer. And, 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 it's, you know, and it is, it, it, there, is, there is absolutely nothing remarkable about him other than that he really did manage to terrorize uh, Wichita. But the thing about that is, is that around, I mean, we mentioned uh, Son of Sam. Around this time, or I think I think around the same time as this, this period, uh, concurrent with this, there's a, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there's another guy who, who killed in, in the in Son of Sam's backyard, Richard Cottingham, who was very similar to BTK in his upbringing, very similar to his methodology, and he killed a lot more people, most likely in New York, largely prostitutes, with a similar MO. And and he's not famous, even though he killed probably 80 to 100 people, in part because he didn't create this ridiculous character. And also because, you know, prostitutes being killed in New York wasn't as big a deal to the police or the society. And But, but I think in, in Wichita, just the idea that you could have someone like this was a big deal. But you know the fact is these people are everywhere, and none of them are remarkable. Uh, it really and um, very few and, and remarkable in any respect. And and really just the just that BTK was narrator was killing a, in a place at a time where they hadn't seen that. But the thing is, is these people are everywhere. They just they, they, they it just depends on on when and how they manifest. It, it's it, there isn't anything about narrator. Other than that, he was the one guy at Wichita at the time that is, that is remarkable. Yeah, so the forensic experts got the DNA f- from Raider, and also they also they also had access to the the, the the floppy disk, and they specifically identified the floppy disk was used at Christ Lutheran Church, and and found out who it was used by. Then they subpoenaed DNA from Raider's daughter that had been used on a swab for five years previously. Eventually was identified that Carrie's DNA was a familial match to the biological crime evidence. Now they had enough evidence to issue an arrest warrant. I believe Carrie has a very, that was, was approached uh, around this time uh, by, some, by some, I don't know if it was heavy agents or local police, who told her that you know that they, they her dad was who her dad was and another tragic aspect of this she was really you know in some ways daddy's little girl she grew up like that with her good relationship with her dad had not any indication that would be the case to not believe it at first and but then eventually of course the proof was given and it, it was just it was difficult obviously to imagine uh, when I was a little kid I had a terrible dream one day, night that my dad was like a demon or something like that. Of course, I woke up the next morning and it was the worst dream I've ever had, and it wasn't true. But I, I mean, unfortunately, her dad was a, a monster, and this is a terrible thing to 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 impossible thing to really come to grips with. That, but the thing was is that while his, the wife did the, the proof they had, the proof was solid. But this is not something that before the proof was offered, that you know his family did not believe it. Certainly, his kids did not and this was around this time they, they they've got the goods on this guy and during the interrogation they noted the cavalier nature in which raider described his victims officer clinch schneider 
which is a detective, said that uh, Raider was sorry for the way he described his victims, often referring to the ne- near-death pleas as yada, yada, yada. Apparently, Raider read a look of astonishment on Schneider's face and then tried to apologize for his seeming indifference. He said, I'm a monster. But uh, the officer described it was like we were talking over coffee as if we were relaying a, a fishing story. Yeah, well, Raider saw the cops in some ways, unlike some of these guys, a lot of these guys, as his buddies. Uh, he, they were part of the same team and part of the same kind of endeavor. <laughs> he talked in one of those things about the camaraderie he felt with them. Like Kemper, like Richard Kemper. And possibly the most famous thing about, because he was caught in 2005. I remember it, although I wasn't a big serial killer. I wasn't really paying attention that much, but he was very infamous at that point. And, and um, or the Fleeker knows BTK was. Maybe the most famous footage of, of, of Dennis Rader is his court testimony, mm-hmm. which is really something to see if you haven't seen it, anyone uh, listening. It's, 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 it's very, very uh, surreal almost because he is talking, the court testimony where he's basically just talking about strangling people and, the, and, and his methodology and, and, and his how he would go about things on a practical level. He is talking like someone who took their car to go get fixed or, 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 or is uh, calling a house cleaner or groceries or it's, 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 it's that kind of just the, ca- the casual day-to-day thing. He's just talking about this stuff and this is typical of some of the people like him. I strangled her. It's like that, that kind of stuff. It's just, and, and, and he's not putting on that air of not caring. It's just, it's just, it's, it's like anything else to him. The, the difference between strangling someone emotionally, doing the dishes, this isn't there. I think uh, some criminologists have described his cavalier attitude as, as actually somewhat of, of a little bit of pride. He was he was proud of, of, of what he was he has achieved and he was just unburdening himself in many ways of just like just like his his letters really. There's that too, yeah. I mean he said he said that that he that in some ways the court testimony was just a little bit of a tension valve release because at least he got to finally Talk about it openly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him standing up there is, was really weird. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of reminded you of, or reminded me of somebody that, you know, the employee at work that is kind of forced to stand up at the front of the, the room and describe what he does for a living to all the new hires. Um, that's yeah. Yeah. That's it, was so... it, it kind of came off to me. It's like uh, he, he's just going through uh, going through the motions there. And of course I'm guessing that it probably his confession probably saved his his life. I don't know the, uh, the the death penalty situation in Kansas, but at the time um, there, there was no death penalty. That's what that's what it was when it was uh, the sentencing was done. I think. At the, well, I mean, in relation to when the crimes were committed. Okay, and so yeah, the, you're right that like he doesn't he doesn't necessarily come off happy about it, but he doesn't he really is, also doesn't hold back a whole lot. You know, you I would have thought given given the weird sexual nature of these crimes, given that there are child victims 
in several of these cases um, that that were either spared or in or unfortunately in the Otero case were not were not spared. Um, you would have thought that he would have held back a little bit, and um, you know, since he's been in prison, he is he's continued to communicate with people and. And and he does. I think behind bars, he he's able to be a little more obvious about about his enjoyment of sharing the stories or what he thinks of himself. Uh, since then, I I have seen some seen or heard some rumors, and I can't remember or recall exactly where that that he may be in in poor health currently. Um, yeah, I've seen the same thing. And so we can all feel we can all feel great about that here on a <laughs> on a Friday night when we get ready to uh, raise our glasses after work. Yeah, no, no, I think that the way you describe it, Nick, is so interesting. It's like he's it's stoic mm-hmm. and it's like modest. It's like an everyday thing that he's doing up there, and that's that probably makes it more chilling than than if it, if, if you know if it was presented in an entertaining way or or if he was like particularly emotional about it but like it's just it's so ordinary mm-hmm. that his his speech to the the people in that in that packed uh, courthouse that that it i don't know it's just ugh, there's, there's just something about it that's so terrifying because of how normal it seems well, and I one thing we can count our blessings, and so can the good people of Wichita, Kansas. This man did. I shouldn't even call him a man. That feels ridiculous. But this this Dennis Raider, he he did apply to be a police officer and a sheriff's deputy at one point as well. And who knows? They they didn't hire him in either situation, obviously who knows how many lives that that saved there there does seem to be a, a a thing with these kind of guys becoming or trying to become policemen it seems like there are more from what i've seen more actual policemen who become killers in other countries and in this country either want to be cops or those who try to join the force an anecdote i think is is interesting uh as i read that uh, the state of Cal- in California, they have this. They they did this thing with some of their prisoners. It was part of a psychological testing thing, and uh, one of the most infamous killers in California history, Lawrence Whitaker, scored the highest anyone's ever scored in California history on a prison guard exam. And there seems to be a thing about how these kind of guys, sadists, and these these guys, they 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 either want to be cops. Or there's something about the job that they are particularly good at, but the social aspect of it is not. I mean, I think in the case of Dennis Rader, it was just the idea of having of, of the status and the, the authority and the, 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 you know, the reputation. But it's a very good thing that we have certain, uh, certain uh, barriers in place, and at least in some states, to, some, to this kind of guy actually becoming a policeman. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully it's, it's too bad it wasn't stopped before they killed that girl, lady's dog, but good thing he didn't kill her, you know. Um, but the, 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 that is, it, it seems to be a, these kind of guys, they love power and they, and they love 
the, the reputation of, of authority. And I remember, you know, even someone like Richard Ramirez, you would not think this heat. Richard Ramirez was a fan of a lot of the cops and a lot of the detectives. And, and he had read about John Douglas and all these things. These guys, they just love power and authority, even the ones who, who, are, who, who you would not guess. No, exactly. And so I think uh, we'll, we'll end this this episode of the the golden age of, of of murder. I want to thank Nick Edwards. Uh, everyone should follow him on 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 Twitter and the True Crime Garage pod, podcast, which is one of the best podcasts in in this space. And actually, outside of 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 the the genre as well, I think. And um, and and probably uses a little bit more alcohol than we that we we like on this show, but uh, but that's uh, that's good too. And um, so yeah, from myself, Toby, from Simeon, and from Nick, goodbye, and uh, see you next time. See you next time. Take care.